This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to episode 25 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. The High Holy Days begin tonight. I know there's no surprise there, but there may be a few surprises in this week's podcast, so keep listening. What the High Holy Days are and what they are not and what's expected of us make up the topic for this week. The High Holy Days, or so most people believe, are downer days. We're supposed to sit and contemplate our sins for ten days from the start of Rosh Hashanah tonight until the end of Yom Kippur, a week from Monday night. It's a frightening time, we're told, and that's how people perceive them. That's the perception, but it's not the reality. Just like it's not the reality that the festival that begins tonight that we call Rosh Hashanah, New Year's, is actually the start of the Jewish New Year. First, here's some of what the Torah says about Rosh Hashanah, and I put that in quotes. Leviticus 23, verse 24 states, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, it shall be a day of rest for you, a sacred day recalling the sound of the shofar, or ram's horn. Then we have Numbers 29, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the first of the month, it shall be a sacred occasion for you, You shall refrain from any skilled labor. It's a day of the sounding of the shofar. That, in essence, is all the Torah says. It's a day that has something to do with the sounding of a shofar. Nowhere does it refer to anything called Rosh Hashanah, New Year, and nowhere does it endow the day with a requirement for personal and communal introspection. In fact, as you heard in those two verses I just read, the day we call New Year's, the Torah calls the first day of the seventh month, not the first day of the first month. That honor the Torah gives to the month in which the Exodus is said to have taken place, the month it calls Aviv, and we now call Nisan, the month during which Passover falls. Says the Torah in Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, This month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you, unquote. It doesn't get clearer than that. Nevertheless, at some point, the day was turned from the Jewish equivalent of July 1st, which is the seventh month on the Gregorian calendar, into the Jewish equivalent of January 1st. Imagine going to Times Square on July 1st to watch the ball drop. There are various reasons given for why this was done, but what's important is that the first day of the seventh month, its name is Tishrei, by the way, has been known as Rosh Hashanah for at least 2,000 years, and probably even longer. It usually falls out during September each year, and it marks the start of our calendar year. The first of Nisan nevertheless continues to mark the start of the year as far as festivals are concerned. So even though Sukkot comes two weeks from now on the 15th of Tishrei, it's nevertheless the last pilgrimage festival of the year, with Passover being the first. That explains why the verses in the Torah refer to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot as occurring during the seventh month, when the Jewish calendar we get at the supermarket has it located in the first month. How is the first day of the seventh month celebrated in biblical times? The Tanakh, the Bible, is silent on the subject, except in one place, in chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah. And what it says is way at odds with common perceptions. Nehemiah A tells how on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the scribe read the Torah to a throng of the people who had returned to Israel at the end of the first exile. I'll explain in a moment why I believe he chose that day, but it wasn't because it was Rosh Hashanah. 
The text clearly refers to it as the first day of the seventh month, not the first, and nowhere does New Year appear there, or virtually anywhere else in the Tanakh, with two possible exceptions, and even then, not in the sense we have of it today. In any case, the people, having lived in exile, knew little or nothing of the Torah, so they wept when they heard the words Ezra read to them. Weeping was not how the day should be observed, they were told, quote, you must not mourn and or weep. Go eat choice foods and drink sweet drinks and send portions of food to whoever has none. And do not be dismayed, for rejoicing in the Lord is your strength. And all the people went to eat and to drink and to send portions and to celebrate with great joy, unquote. As to why Ezra chose that day to read the Torah to the people and why they were told to celebrate with great joy, The key, I believe, is in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 24, which refers to the day as, quote, a sacred day recalling the sound, unquote, of the shofar. There's only one place in the Torah where recalling the sound of a shofar is worthy of a special day each year, the day when Israel stood before Mount Sinai to receive the law. Moses was told to prepare the people for three days, then, quote, and it was on the third day, as morning dawned, that there was thunder and lightning and a heavy cloud upon the mountain and a very loud blast of the horn. And all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses led the people out of the camp to where God was, and they assembled at the base of the mountain. And the blare of the shofar grew in intensity. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder." It would seem then, to me at least, that the first day of the seventh month was originally set aside to celebrate the giving of the Torah, because on Shavuot, the harvesting of the first fruits occupied a lot of time, and so did Happy to make the journey to the temple in Jerusalem during this period, because that was a requirement on Shavuot, at least for everyone engaged in farming. Israel back then was an agricultural economy, after all. Probably during the first exile, when the people were in Babylon and weren't farming anything, the celebration of the Torah was transferred to Shavuot. There was no longer a harvest to worry about or a temple to go to, yet Shavuot needed a reason for being because it was a Torah-commanded observance. Because the Torah itself places the Sinai encounter in the third month, which is when Shavuot falls out, it made sense to designate it in a way the Torah does not, as the festival of the giving of the law, Zman Matan Torah Tenu. That left the Torah-ordained festival of the first day of the seventh month without a reason for being. That it comes just before Yom Kippur, however, created an opportunity to extend the period of introspection for the entire ten-day period. With the temple rebuilt, it's very likely that Ezra reverted to the original definitions, at least for his community in the land of Israel, which is why I believe he chose to read the Torah aloud to the people on that day. The sages, when they finally arrived on the scene several hundred years later, couldn't ignore the biblical view espoused in the book of Nehemiah and show no signs of wanting to do so. With the second temple now destroyed, however, they reverted back to the first exile solution. Shavuot again became the festival of the giving of the Torah, and what was by then known as Rosh Hashanah was formalized as the beginning of a 10-day period of reflection, penitence, and prayer. Nevertheless, the sages maintained its status as a Yom Tov, a good day, a day of joyous celebration, probably because that was how the day was always seen by the people in their time. 
Yom Kippur, despite that it's a fast day, also retains that status. It too is a Yom Tov rather than a day of mourning and dread. In the biblical view, Yom Kippur is a day of national atonement. National, not personal. And a day to afflict your souls, as the Torah puts it, which was interpreted even in biblical times to mean fasting. But it also is a Shabbat of rest, the Sabbath of Sabbaths in the Torah's words. And every Shabbat is supposed to be a joyous one. This one is no exception. Even the liturgy of the day reflects that. There are prayers recited on Yom Kippur that we would never even consider reciting on a mournful day, such as the most important of these, the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av. One such prayer includes the words, The Lord gave us this day out of love. These are the same prayers we recite on Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, and on Rosh Hashanah, but we would never say them on a day of mourning. That would be an abomination. According to the sage Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, by the way, Yom Kippur even had its lighter side in ancient times. Quote, There were no days as joyous for the Jewish people as the 15th of Av and as Yom Kippur. As on them, the daughters of Jerusalem would go out in white clothes and dance in the vineyards, unquote. For the record, the 15th of Av was a minor festival in biblical times. Few people outside Israel observe it today. In Israel, it's considered a day for love to bloom. As for accepting the word of Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, he was not just another sage. He was the head of the Land of Israel community after the Second Temple was destroyed 2,000 years ago, so we can assume he knew whereof he spoke. The ability to convert Yom Kippur into a day of personal atonement comes from its designation as a Shabbat, a day of rest, because it affords us the opportunity to take a day out of our busy lives to reflect on our behavior and change those aspects we find wanting. The Yom Kippur of the Torah was a national event and required a ritual performed on behalf of the nation by the high priest in the temple. Without a temple, Yom Kippur should have disappeared, which would have been unfortunate, as well as not appropriate, given that it's a Torah-mandated observance. Converting it into a day of personal atonement not only preserved the day, but gave it more profound meaning, thus allowing it to remain relevant into our day. Support for doing so was found in Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel, a major prophet of the first exile, may in fact be the originator of the idea. He never, however, mentions Yom Kippur in that chapter, or any else for that matter, except for a possible oblique reference elsewhere. What Ezekiel was doing in chapter 18 was redefining responsibility. As I've mentioned in other podcasts, the Torah's laws are corporate. They apply to the nation as a whole and how it behaves, which is why there was a need for a National Day of Atonement. But nothing is said about personal atonement or how to achieve it. Without a physical nation, Ezekiel placed the burden of fulfilling the Torah's commandments squarely on individual shoulders. At the same time, he pictured God as judging each individual, deciding on who shall live and who shall die, as one High Holy Days prayer puts it. In chapter 18, Ezekiel quotes God as saying, quote, The soul who sins, he alone shall die. If a man is righteous and does that which is just and right, 
If he has not harmed anyone, has returned the debtor's pledge each night, has not committed robbery nor stolen another's bread, if he gives to the hungry and clothes the naked and has not taken interest for a loan, and if he judges equitably between one person and another and follows my laws and is careful to observe my statutes to do what is true and righteous, that one shall live. And should the wicked one repent of his sins that he committed and is careful to observe all my laws and do what is just and righteous, he too shall live and not die. None of his sins that he did will even be remembered. Do I want an evil one to die, says the Lord, when what I want is for them to return and live? Because he took note of his wrongdoings that he has done and returned for them? Therefore, children of Israel, Know that I will judge each person according to his ways. Turn away from all your wrongdoings, Fear and trembling aren't required for repentance. Only sincerity and deep thought are needed. Repentance is achievable at any time of the year, 24-7-365 or 24-7-353 if we use the number of days in the Jewish year 5781. And it's accomplished through a person's conscious decision to change his or her behavior for the better. The notion that the high holy days are the last chance for repentance for an entire year undermines that belief. To be sure, the high holy days had their serious side from the earliest period of rabbinic tradition. Building on Ezekiel 18, the sages declared that God's judgment is delivered to each individual at this time, a judgment delivered on Rosh Hashanah and confirmed or altered on Yom Kippur, depending on how serious we are about changing. The rabbis of the Talmudic age referred to Rosh Hashanah, among other names, as Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment. They talked about God listening to our confessions and writing his response in a book of life, a judgment that's sealed as Yom Kippur comes to an end. This anthropomorphic description, however, was not meant to convey the notion that one's fate is resolved during the first ten days of Tishrei, just as Ezekiel's words were not so intended. Rather, as the sages saw it, it conveys the notion that God recognizing that we lead busy lives with countless distractions, carved out a special time for us to concentrate on our inner selves in a way not possible at other times. This period begins on Rosh Hashanah and culminates on Yom Kippur, a day in which all everyday distractions are proscribed, including refraining from eating or drinking, not because we're in mourning or in dread, but to free us from those everyday concerns long enough to take serious stock of our lives. This is known as cheshmon nefesh in Hebrew, taking account of our souls. Rather than being our last chance or our only chance, they saw it simply as our best chance at repentance because we'd been given the gift of time to think things through. This isn't something to mourn over but to sing about with joyful song. This is something to celebrate with appropriate festivity on Rosh Hashanah and with a joyous spirit on Yom Kippur. Fasting on Yom Kippur has value. It can even serve as a way of making us aware of what it's like for those people who go hungry every day, not just on one day out of the year. The point of Yom Kippur is concentrating on ourselves and on our actions and on our inactions and on our behavior. Concentration requires avoidance of distractions, and eating can be a major distraction. 
On the other hand, not eating or drinking can end up being just as distracting and perhaps even more so. Start Yom Kippur by totally fasting and try to make it through the 25 hours. As the day progresses and hunger becomes too much of a distraction, have some orange juice or perhaps an appetite-suppressing nutrition bar. Those who begin to feel faint or become too weak, Torah law, which puts protecting life ahead of almost everything, requires them to eat just enough food to overcome such feelings. The Talmud discusses this in the tractate Yoma, which deals with issues relating to Yom Kippur. Here's some of what it says. Quote, Whenever a person who feels ill says, I need to eat, even if there are a hundred competent physicians who say he does not need to do so, we listen to him, as it is said in Proverbs, the heart alone knows its bitterness. If there are no competent physicians present, we feed him according to his own opinion, unquote. Fasting, however, has no meaning in and of itself, no matter what anyone ever said. We have the word of the prophet Isaiah confirming that. Here's what he had to say in chapter 58, which the sages chose to be read in synagogues on Yom Kippur. It's the Haftarah in the morning on Yom Kippur. The people ask of God, Why did we fast, yet you took no notice? We afflicted our souls, yet you pay no heed. This is how God answers them, according to Isaiah, quote, Such fasts as you do today will not cause your voices to be heard on high. Do I desire such a fast, a day for a person to afflict his soul, to bend the head like a papyrus reed does, or to lie down, covered in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day the Lord wants? Is this not rather the fast I want, that you unlock the chains of wickedness, release the bonds of the yoke, free the oppressed, and to smash all yokes. Is it not that you should share your bread with the hungry and house the destitute poor to clothe anyone you see who is naked and to not turn away from the needs of your own kin? Doing so is when your light will burst forth like the morning and your healing will begin to blossom. Your righteousness will go before you. Then when you call, the Lord your Savior will respond and say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the threatening finger, the sinister speech, and instead show compassion to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the famished, then your light will shine in the darkness. Unquote. Nowhere here, or in Ezekiel for that matter, is there any reference to violating any of the ritual commandments. I'll have more to say about all of this in next week's Pre-Yom Kippur podcast. For now, suffice it to say that neither Rosh Hashanah nor Yom Kippur is about ritual sins. The high holy days come just as summer is ending and fall is just beginning. It's a time when most people of every faith and persuasion view as the start of another year. That means Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are perfectly timed because they're about improving the world during the year ahead by improving ourselves now. We'll never be perfect but we can always be better than we were before. And we can always help make the world better than it is. That's also a big theme on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Most people don't realize it, but on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we pray for all creatures within whom there is the breath of life. We don't just pray for ourselves. And then we also pray for the world at large, the environment, the ecology. As the British theologian and scholar Rabbi Jeffrey M. Cohen notes, this is made clear in one of the most significant prayers in the High Holy Days liturgy, the Uditana Tokef prayer. We attest to the holiness of the day. When it says, quote, 
All who have come into the world pass before God to be judged as would a flock of sheep, unquote. God judges all his creatures at this time, not to sentence them to death, but to give them a chance to live. Remember that quote from Ezekiel earlier, in which he has God saying that he doesn't want anyone to die. He wants them to change their ways. That's what God intends by judging all his creatures, and because that's what he intends, we must pray for them as well as ourselves, because we're commanded to emulate God, to walk in his ways, as the Torah puts it. And God, as we say over and over again during the High Holy Days, is, quote, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, unquote. If that's what he is, that's what we need to be. And that's why we pray for every human on this planet, and for every animal, and for every bird, and for everything else that God created. There's a very important and very serious message in that, bluntly stated on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. All of those identifiers we humans adopt to keep us apart from each other. Religion, race, skin color, nationality, language, gender, politics, and so forth. All of that is declared nonsense. Artificial constructs that have no basis in the reality of God's world. So yes, we do pray on the High Holy Days for the well-being of every creature within whom there is the breath of life. Praying for them, however, is not enough. We have to spend the rest of the year actually working to improve life for every creature, human, animal, or avian, which also means we have to spend the rest of the year improving the natural world in which we all live. And that's on top of having to spend the rest of the year improving ourselves. And that brings me to my final point for this week. Don't expect God to forgive us if we pray hard enough on the high holy days, and especially on Yom Kippur. It doesn't work that way, again, despite what we've always been told. The High Holy Days are not some kind of extended confessional. There's no instant absolution. We need to decide to be better people in 5781 than we were in 5780. But God will wait to see whether we're actually sincere about changing before he agrees to forgive us. Talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words. And where God is concerned, what we do is what he cares about, not what we say we're going to do. This is Rabbi Shalmai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org www.shamai.org and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom. Shana Tova, stay healthy and stay safe. And may the year 5781 be a year of only blessings for us and for all of God's creation.